The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on Newstalk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. Liam Griffin is on the line, of course, now famous as a hotelier, but once upon a time famous as a hurler, and particularly a Wexford hurling manager. Probably last time they won the All-Ireland. Hey, welcome to the programme, Liam. Thanks, George. I suppose you're all fired up about the replay on Saturday night now that the scoreboard didn't work last week, eh? No, well, I tell you what I am fired up about. I was part of a committee there with uh, Sherlock Nan, Nicky English, Pat Daly from Crow Park and various people that uh, had a hand in bringing in those particular competitions. And I was absolutely I know you were. See, I was absolutely thrilled to see the joy and everybody else so delighted after winning Lout winning and, uh, and Meat winning and then, you know, uh, it was uh, it was spectacular like and it really was great and some great scores. So it's disappointing it winds up like uh, like this but there you have it. It's uh, a yeah. bit of a cock up. Oh, but yeah, but I'm I'm very worried because we there is now a following a report uh, a very high prevalence of of uh, common mental disorder symptoms amongst elite Gaelic footballers. Uh, what do you think? And hurlers. No, I, well, I read it actually. It's uh, about congenital muscular dystrophy, but I don't think it's congenital. I think they're comp- they're focusing on uh, obviously the environment in which they play. Now, it's very disturbing, to be quite honest, and I think everybody in the GEA should read it. It's in the Cork Examiner today, and it's a really, really good article. Um, now, the, some of the facts in it, like it's a small cohort of people they have uh, got to respond to it. Now, that was that they selected a smaller cohort versus international football, which is a much bigger cohort. So it might distort Fagger slightly, but the biggest thing that's really disturbing out of it is that uh, 23% of, of, of respondents t- claim to have uh, adverse alcohol problems, uh, and that's during their playing days, and 48% anxiety and depression versus the international football, 9 to 19 uh, uh, in alcohol and uh, 26 to 38 in depression. And if you go to the next one, which is um, over 38 discovered experience in distress and sleeping, it's only 23% of professional footballers who are much more under pressure in, because their salaries depend on that. So those are startling figures and worrying figures and something that must be addressed. And well, they're due to me, GPA for bringing it up. Well, let me give you two possible reasons, okay? One is that the pressure of of time pressure, particularly, and training pressure and so on, on an inter-county hurler or footballer is immeasurably greater than the pressure on my my own Christy Ring or your Nicky Rackard. Yeah. Would you agree I accept, I accept that, but the problem is this is only the symptomatic expression of how we run our games. And I think this brings a much broader issue into into focus. I mean, like we have 32 counties and there are actually 32 independent republics uh, in terms of our sport. You've got an, uh, you have got a, a county board which runs and administers its own stuff, which is fine. Then you have a, a Leinster Council, Munster Council, other provincial councils, and then you have an overall association. 
But we really do need to relook at it. I mean, time change uh, change uh, happens. I'm in business all my life, and change happens. And if you don't change with business, you you go down, and that's the end of it. But in the GA, we have issues that need to be addressed, yeah. and the system we have for addressing it is not actually fit for purpose right. at this moment in time. That's just my opinion. Okay. Now, point one is the the pressure on the modern day uh, intercounty player uh, is immeasurably greater than than uh, thirty years ago. Number one. Yes, they, George, but we have caused that problem ourselves now. Oh no, I accept that. I'm not looking for cause at the moment. I'm, yes, okay. I'm looking for, you know, one, yeah. well, I am looking for cause, but, but not blame. That's yes. it. I'm looking for cause, but not blame. The right. second issue I will put here, which obviously uh, we're seeing in, in uh, soccer, we're seeing in American football, and we're seeing in rugby, which is the whole issue because of the higher impacts now experienced, uh, that we are looking at uh, uh, mental issues. All the issues raised here are mental issues. So the games are also getting immeasurably more physical. Yes, they are. But there's a lot of this down to injuries as well. And I mean, to be quite honest with you, like the the, 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 the commentary on the injury side here is very disturbing as well. So we have a lot. Now, this is overuse. This is overuse. Now, this has been said by Pori Duffy and by people at Crow Park. But when you want to get something changed in the GEA, you need a two-thirds majority at convention every year. Now, is convention properly informed of exactly the reasons why? So I actually believe it's probably time to get a study group to go in there and examine a root and branch uh, examination, maybe chaired by somebody independent who is not involved in the GEA, to see exactly what's happening. For example, I'll give you a typical example. Wexford played Dublin and Hurling, and... uh, the mental pressure, by the way, just as an aside to that first, is that people now have access to Twitter and all sorts of stuff. Some of the abuse that's been dished out to amateur players on Twitter would drive you crazy, to be honest with you, because they've got lives and homes and families and wives and yeah. girlfriends and the face Correct. down to the local base. And this is cowardice to beyond, beyond belief, because I don't believe there's a single inter-county player that's, that's left in a panel that's going out there not to do his best. And I often see local radio stations as well letting anonymous people ring in to, to make absolute diatribe against individual players and some of that's coming from people who are related to other people who don't make the panel don't forget you're local like that it it can be distorted but aside from that take this one into account Wexford played Dublin in the Leinster Championship in uh, Crow Park fortnight ago and they were beaten badly and fairly by Dublin Wexford had played five championship matches in the county as a preparation for that game and most of our players had played on on, on both hurling and football so the preparation for a championship match was five weeks in a row uh, to play before they played Dublin and then the county team had to take him out training as well in the middle of all that now if that's not overuse I don't know what is and I'm not just uh, uh, pillaring my own county I'm just saying that's what it takes to run the club system and as long as we're going to play all our finals in the first one in September and, not, and voted down then that we have to stay on that particular date we need a club season in our association and we need it desperately because our players that play for inter-county teams are borrowed from our clubs so we need to relook at the entire fr- fr- framework, and we also need to look at a county by county in relation to people but who are playing board holding and football. But maybe if it went professional, because it's half professional at the moment, because some of the guys are, you know, the local supermarket is probably giving them free potatoes or somebody's driving a car or whatever. They're kind of half professional. Why not go the whole hog and be professional? And then the amateurs play for the clubs and the professionals play for the county. What's that done for rugby, George, at the local club level? I mean, Nothing. I, you, destroyed it. Destroyed exactly. It. So you want to destroy our game? With the <laughs> no, no, no. I'm no. just glad you. I'm just glad you're aware 
Because, I am aware because, because don't tell me, no, Liam, don't tell me there isn't pressure within your football and hurling sports to go professional. Don't there tell is me there's pressure, but George, listen now. We are we are rooted in, in rural Ireland, and that's not by way to be kind of uh, feeling that that makes us some kind of a Ku uh, Cullens of the last century or whatever the hell. We are we're ordinary people, but our clubs make up the county teams. If we give three players from our club, and we give three players from the neighbouring club, and they are going to get played to play professionally, they will not want to play for our club again. No, they, they won't. Will not come back. They, no, won't. they won't want to play, and yeah. they won't risk injury because it's going to cost them money. Now that then completely right. undermines the entire fabric of our association. And our association has been built on that fabric. We need to look at our playing methodology that we have to deliver winners of championships. And bear in mind as well, there are young lads going into intercounty. And I said to you earlier, we started the Christie Ring, the Mickey Rackard. We need to do something similar in football. There's absolutely no way that teams that are playing in the All-Ireland Football Championship, even though they deserve their opportunity, and I accept that, have a prayer of winning an All-Ireland Senior Football Final. So we'd be better off to grade it in some kind of a system as well. But we need to look at the whole grading and we need a time okay. for our clubs and we've got to find a time for our clubs as well. And that's basically it. And as long as you're doing that, you must remember some young lad of 18 years of age who is a really good hurler or footballer is put under terrible pressure by his own club. He's almost treated as an outcast if he doesn't come to the field and he's expected to do the same for an inter-county team at both under-21 and at senior. Right. And in my own time, you could be playing hurling and football for the county. So this is not doable anymore. It's not doable and it needs a root and branch approach okay. and it doesn't need a two-third majority to carry it. All right. Thank you so much, Liam Griffin. A former Wexford hurling manager, of course, now a hugely successful hotelier. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Thousands of cancer patients are being denied life-extending treatment for a number of reasons. Some of them being suggested are the European drug regulations, which would appear to take much longer than those in the United States of America. A drug already rolled out in the US, which has been known to be very effective in extending life, is not being rolled out here. Well, I wondered why. I'm joined now by Professor John Cran, consultant oncologist at St. Vincent's Hospital. Professor Cran, welcome to the programme. Hello, George. How are you? Now, this has sort of reached uh, a stage because, of course, as part of the whole Brexit debate in the UK, the people suggesting leaving are bringing up a lot of the reasons why uh, being a member of the EU is a negative. Um, They're suggesting that people could die because this drug is not available in Europe, but it is available in America. That's not sure. true, surely. It, it is, George. And it's a very complex story. Let me put my cards on the table. I give, haven't given the matter a lot of thought. I'm anti-Brexit. I believe it's better for Britain and better for the rest of Europe if they stay in. Uh, I, as you also know, have been a very trenchant critic of the restriction of access to cancer drugs, both in this country and in the UK, more, uh, and also more generally in Europe. The truth is these are two separate issues. Um, The approval process for drugs in Europe is relatively good. It's not that bad. There are very few drugs I can think of where the barrier to me being able to use the drug has been a slowness on the part of the European regulators. The slowness is on the part of the people who pay for it. And in Britain, they do a very detailed health technology assessment, they call it, looking at the cost of the drug, the value of the drug, 
uh, whether they think they can afford it or not. The British are right at the top end of the scale of severity in terms of denying drugs. And as a result, they have amongst the worst cancer survivals of any of the large countries with sophisticated health systems. So I've been very critical of the British. They have systematically denied many of their patients many drugs over the years. The particular drug they're talking about is a drug called palbocyclin, which I'm delighted to say I had a big hand in getting into Ireland about five or six years ago, and Ireland was one of the first countries to get involved in large-scale studies with this drug, together with our very, a very good friend of Ireland, uh, Dr. Dennis Slayman from the University of California, Los Angeles. And he came to us for help in getting patients on the study because they had some early hints that it was a good drug. And in the study that we helped them with, it became very obvious that it was an extremely good drug. And as a result, the American Food and Drug Administration, the people who approved drugs, did something very unusual. Even though the study we did was relatively small, the results looked so good that they gave an accelerated or provisional approval to the company so that the drug could be sold in the United States even before the big confirmatory trial was done. Now, that big confirmatory trial was just presented in Chicago in the last several days. And again, I'm delighted that there were many Irish uh, patients on it. My good friend and colleague, Dr. Janice Walsh, uh, had a hand in getting that trial developed in, in this country. And it confirmed the result, that, the result that we found a few years ago, that this is a very good drug. Now, what the American FDA did is unusual. I believe it will become more usual as time goes on but at the same time, now, a non-expert here, but this drug, if given to a cancer patient, doesn't cure them, but it extends their life. Now, as you well know, as, as an oncologist or, or any doctor knows, if you went to somebody and said, I can give you another 12 months if you take this pill, the vast majority of people will grab it with both hands. Are um, Irish people being denied that life-extending drug at the moment, for whatever reason. What it has been shown to do is to prolong the period of control, i.e. it prolongs the period of time before the patient gets bad news that your treatment is no longer working, the scans or the x-rays are worse, we need to change the treatment. That, that is delayed. And George, it's delayed hugely. It's about between 10 months and a year, which is for a single relatively non-toxic drug, a very big, very big difference. Okay. But we have... We yeah, but John, thought, sorry, but but this nevertheless, am I correct in saying, I think this is very important, if this were available to you in the morning at Vincent's Hospital, where you're a professor of oncology, would you would it make a difference to a substantial number of your patients? I, I would use it. I, would just, I just left the bedside of a patient right now. I would love to prescribe it to you, and I cannot. But George, so, the so. rules that have been... The rules that have been followed over many years are that large, what are called phase three trials, must be done before drugs were. And this is the way the Americans, everybody has always done it this way. They made an exception with this drug a few years ago and they changed the rules. And I believe others, including Europe, will do so. What I am concerned about is that when we read that people may die because a drug that is currently available in America isn't available here, then naturally we get worried, no? Yes, there are many such drugs. And as you know, George, I spent the last two weeks fighting for absolutely yes. clearly life-saving drugs for different forms of cancer, most prominently melanoma. And they were absolutely in danger of being systematically denied in this country. It had nothing to do with Europe. It was the HSE. And the same problem will occur in Britain. The big barrier to drugs being made available to British cancer patients who desperately need them is not the European Union. 
it is the authorities in Britain who make a decision not to but, pay but for it. But, okay, let's go back to your battle of the last two weeks. Maybe a different drug, but we still did the, bat- the battle, in your view, was I need these drugs for my patients, but, but you, the HSE, won't pay for them, no? Yes. Yeah, so, so The need was much greater with that drug than it is with this drug. I, I must say, this is a really good drug, but we literally, it was five days ago, okay. four days ago, that the presentation was made of okay. the kind of trial which results in drugs being approved. I, have, I will make, I'm not a betting person, George, but I will make any bet with you that you want that this drug will be approved very expeditiously okay. in Europe. But, but, but and fine. I'm also very sure that the biggest barrier to Irish patients getting the drug will not be European approval. It will be whether the HSE will pay for it. That's going to be the big barrier. But finally, before you go, um, today in Cabinet, they approved a, no, a half a billion bailout, if you like, for the HSE. And Pascal Donoghue, the expenditure manager, said there'll be no more bailouts now for the HSE this is it. The reality of it is, though, if we haven't got any money, then the bureaucrat, the, the HSE, is always going to be in a battle with you, the oncologist. George, I have a very important appeal that I want to make, and I want okay. to use your good office and the airwaves to make this appeal to Minister Harris and to Minister Noonan right now, okay? The big fight we had a few weeks ago for the immune system drugs and melanoma, I'm so glad Simon Harris did a great thing by these patients. He made an executive decision. I believe my own interpretation of what happened was he laid down the law to the bureaucracy and said, this is outrageous, make a decision quickly, and the drug will now be available. But George, the problem is the same drugs, the same kind of drugs also work in a much more common kind of cancer, which is lung cancer. Ten times more people die from lung cancer as die from melanoma. We're talking annual costs of 50 to 100 million if we're going to treat people with lung cancer. George, there is a simple fix to this. Michael Noonan, Simon Harris, listen to me. Put 50 cents tax on every, I've done the arithmetic, 50 cent tax on every pack of cigarettes, but that 50 cent reserved for the new anti-cancer drugs. And there will not be a problem. We won't find ourselves you know, battling on the airwaves, the drugs will be paid for, the money won't come out of any other part of the HSE budget, there won't be any cutbacks in services for the elderly or children or anything, this would be a different tax, please do it. All right, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Professor in Oncology at St. Vincent's Hospital, formerly Senator, of course, John Crown. Thank you, George. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now by a psychotherapist at NU. It's Deirdre Shanahan. Deirdre, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. What is NU? NU is a support service uh, for parents for single people, for those experiencing a crisis pregnancy. There's, there's many kind of strands to our service, really, but it, it encompasses the whole aspect of family. Now, why I asked you to come on the programme, though, was um, in, in relation to abortion counselling, but interestingly, where men are concerned, because there is increasingly, which upsets me greatly, I have to say, there's a kind of a view that men have no involvement in abortion at all. It's none of their business it's my body and I can do what I like with that sort of approach from from the women's side of the argument and you can disagree as much as you like and that men kind of have no role in it. What's your experience there for? I suppose for us, I suppose for the therapists in our service who work on the ground, we see a kind of, we see it from both sides. We see those coming in who are thinking of termination who come in. We see those who've experienced termination and they're struggling at the other side of that. 
Um, sometimes we find that women come alone, but we see a slight increase now in men accompanying their partners before the decision is made. And equally, we now kind of have men approaching us after the termination just to get a little bit of support for, for them and what they're experiencing. Because, because it's really interesting. If we were talking about, like, pregnancy, conventional pregnancy, um, the figure would be like 90% in terms of men and women coming together. Isn't that right? If, if, if we were just talking about some kind of pregnancy issue or doing your breathing exercises or whatever the heck it was, the, the men and women thing, both people invariably come along. Abortion still is the most difficult psychological area for both genders number one but 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 men it's it's wrong surely to think that a man doesn't feel any of the same kind of trauma that a woman might it's not a question of more or less but but he would feel the same kind of trauma surely he can experience trauma like every i suppose every individual experiences trauma in a different way everybody works through a crisis in a different way so while it is undoubtedly a crisis for a woman, it is also in some aspects a crisis for a man as well. It's just how does one person process it over another? It's the processing of the crisis sometimes can be the issue. But but you can also have a, the decision to have an abortion is the woman's alone. Isn't that right? That would be, I suppose that would be the thinking out there, that it's a woman's body, it's a woman's life. Right. It's, she can choose to do what she would like to do at that time. But but there, but there could be a crisis where a loving couple, not a couple, not a crisis in the sense of an unwanted child or something, but a loving couple where they have very different views on abortion. That must happen. That does happen. Absolutely. It really, really happens. So what we find with men generally is what they try to do is they try to be extremely supportive. And sometimes in being supportive, they feel the best way to be like that is to be as silent as possible. So, yes, they're supporting all the way. Whatever they're feeling, whatever they're experiencing in, in their own minds, they're keeping it to themselves. So, yes, they are being extremely supportive, but in, in some aspects, they don't actually disclose how they feel at that point in time. Yeah, because men traditionally are very bad on anything to do with emotions um, and, and in turn then with medical issues. Like men are much worse at going to the doctor than mm. women are. Mm. Uh, men have never been this idea like that be strong and don't cry and all that sort of stuff makes dealing with emotions very difficult for men. So presumably when men come to you, and my guest, by the way, is psychotherapist Deirdre Shanahan of ANU um, that uh, helps with uh, these issues uh, for men and women. But Deirdre, when they come then, it probably takes a bit of teasing out by you to get to the point where the man, what the man is really feeling or what the man is talking about? Yeah, sometimes they don't, like a, a man may not approach the service with those feelings uppermost as the primary issue. Sometimes they don't actually come straight out and say, this is why I'm here. Sometimes it, it, it transfers it to secondary issues. So they may come for some other aspect of the service. And within that, within the context of that particular piece of the service, they then disclose what actually ails them deep down. So kind of from a well-being point of view, it's at that point they begin to disclose what's going on for them, really. So you could have men who cry. You could have men who yes, stay could. awake all night. You, you could have mm. men experiencing all the same kind of emotional merry-go-round as a woman. Absolutely, yes. Because as human beings, we all, we're all going to process loss or decision-making or a crisis. We're all going to process it in our own particular way. 
But but it is true, nevertheless, that society, modern society, is increasingly suggesting that the man has no role in this issue. I think people are reluctant to kind of declare who should have which role. I think in many ways it has always been promoted as a woman's issue, and that's absolutely fine. But behind every woman there is also a man, and while the man may know how he feels, he may not feel at that point it's appropriate to say how he feels. So there can be a sense of powerlessness about it. There can be a sense of, I need to keep my own counsel. I should not say this. I need to be supportive at this point in time. And I suppose for many men, that's the goal, to be as supportive as possible. They can sometimes become as silent as possible. So their own emotions never get opened up, never get discussed. But if we're talking about abortion, of course, we we are talking about uh, a procedure that's illegal in this country. So we're talking about a situation that mother and father now have to go to Britain. Isn't that Mm -hmm. so? All right. It's a very complex, I suppose, uh, abortion itself is such a complex issue. It really, really is for any individual. there's so many facets to the decision making. There's so it's not it's it's not a very simple decision. It's a very very complex decision, and it's something that that either person, be it male or female, they have to work through it in their own way and come to the decision that they feel is the best decision for them at that time. You're right. Yes, they do have to travel overseas for that. But but if you, as a psychotherapist, um, Deirdre Shannon, um, if you were a psychotherapist 30 or more years ago, you would have a, another complication in the mix, um, which is religious belief. Because 30 or more years ago, a high percentage of the people who, who were coming in, because in the case of a crisis pregnancy, mm-hmm. there was the crisis, but, but there was then... The, the whole guilt situation because of the religious belief. Yes, it was something that wasn't talked about. Like society 30 years ago was much, much different to society today. Like that's down to obviously to, to, to media, to how we, we actually discuss things more openly nowadays. And for that reason alone, how, how it is today and how it was 30 years ago, there's probably, in many ways, there's no comparison really. No, but sorry, Deirdre, but there still would be surely... Maybe a minority, but there still must be people who come into you who, in conscience, um, believe that what they're doing is wrong. There must be some people who do that because there must be there must be Catholics or or Church of Ireland or or whatever people of deep religious belief who now have a crisis pregnancy on their hands and are looking at a way of fixing it, but but they have religious conviction about what they're doing. That must present an enormous problem for a psychotherapist. It can, but generally in a crisis, it's like all that goes out the window. It's like what you think, what your values are, all those things go out the window. No, hold on, Deirdre. Honestly, I mean, I'm sorry for interrupting, but but do you really, I don't know, you see, you're the expert. I was never in that kind of a room before. I was never in that kind of situation. But to somebody who who believes in in a particular uh, belief in in relation to um, abortion, that when the crisis then hits them, that goes out the window. It's, not, it's, it's In a crisis, straight thinking kind of gets all muddled. You know, okay. it's like who yeah. I am, what yeah. I am, what I believe, what I want to do, what I should do. The whole thing gets quite muddled. And at that point in time, they're, they're in such a crisis, it's like, what am I going to do? What will I do? When will I do it? And that becomes the overriding piece. Yes, they may have their own convictions deep down. They may have their own value systems deep down. But at that point in time, the crisis is the one, the the crisis in itself has risen to the surface. And what they're struggling with is this huge crisis in their life at this moment in time. And it is very much driven moment by moment. 
So it's like right at, at that moment, this is where they, they're at. This is where they're struggling. Now, finally, um, and you don't, this question, it doesn't ex- require an answer from you. But also when somebody comes to see a psychotherapist, the psychotherapist, no matter how professional, I would imagine can't put their own personal beliefs to one side. That must be very difficult too. I mean, hypothetically, and I'm not talking about you here, dear, hypothetically, you could have a psychotherapist who had strong views vis-a-vis of abortion of no can do, and you might have a psychotherapist who has a very strong view in terms of yes, we can, as it were. That also must be difficult for the professional, no? It can be difficult for a professional, but like in, in, in your training as a therapist, like all of that is actually dealt with. Like okay. we, we deal with, with, with all of that in our training anyway. It's like how do we actually remain neutral in all of this? How do we facilitate that person who sits across from us to make the decision that they feel is the best decision for them for the rest of their lives? That's the purpose of, of I suppose, of the, the, the therapeutic okay. hour really. It's like how do we help this person make a decision that they feel they want to make? So it has nothing to do with the therapist themselves, but it has everything to do with that person sitting across from you. They're the person in the crisis. They're the ones that they want to unpack it. They want to figure out what they want to do. And I suppose that's the role of therapy, really. All right. It's it's non-directive. It's not what any one person thinks they should do. It's what does this person actually want to do. All right. Uh, Deirdre Shanahan, psychotherapist with NU. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you me. very much, George. Thank you. And your thoughts, of course, to 53106, cost 30 cent. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, I'm joined now by Professor Matthew Johnson at Binghamton University in upstate New York, author of... Great Myths of Intimate Relationships, Dating, Sex, and Marriage. Professor Johnson, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Well, of course, you were a certainty to be on the program once I read the book, Great Myths of Intimate Relationships. I mean, I immediately said, this is going to be great stuff. And then uh, you come up with a very interesting prognosis about uh, satisfaction in marriage for couples. What have you found? Well, um, there's a few different ones about satisfaction in couples, but one that I've written an article about and that's had a little bit of attention is that having children actually lowers couples' satisfaction with their marriage. And if you think about it, most couples, on average, their satisfaction with their relationship declines following the wedding. The catch is, for couples with children, that rate of decline is twice as steep as it is for couples without children. I love the first depressing part to that, where you say uh, the marriage declines immediately after the wedding. Uh, And keeps the (laughs) client. Well, I'm an expert. I'm married 47 years, um, so I know all about this. Um, Congratulations. And with three kids. And the interesting thing is that the more you think about it, what you did with this this article first, and then in terms of the book, really, was you made me think. And then the more I thought about it, and the listeners may be thinking about it now— 
is that, of course, children mess with it because very often the mother, the female, starts devoting herself to the good of the children rather than the good of the husband, isn't it? That's, you've got it right. That's a big part of it. And, and the interesting part is even in couples where they're really dedicated to sharing the burden of parenting and sharing household chores equally, even in those couples, it tends to be mothers who take the brunt of the impact of childbearing, and, and of, course, child, of course childbearing, but and childrearing. And, and, and so in those couples, then, what that means is that, uh, that mothers, if they work outside the home, they may cut back their hours, they may become more socially isolated, and and for fathers, often they feel as if then more of the financial burden is on them. And so often with fathers, they'll even increase their hours working outside the home. And then, as you might expect, following that comes feelings of frustration and guilt on both sides for both mothers and fathers. But the, the, the very important part, of course, about this is that First of all, it's unspoken. I mean, I, I just couldn't imagine any time in my marriage saying to my wife, you know, uh, these children are causing a decline in our relationship. I mean, it would, there would have been mayhem, and I guess there would be in most couples if you if you sort of had that discussion. Uh, and the second thing, apart, you don't speak about it, but the second thing is you probably don't even know that there's a, I mean, you know there's a decline in, in the relationship, but, but you don't actually realize why there's a decline. You don't, you don't isolate the, the problem, which is there are now one, two, three, four, five other people in, in the relationship. Right. I, th- I think you're exactly right. I think people have trouble figuring out what's going on. And, and I also think you're right that it feels shameful to even acknowledge that maybe these wonderful little bundles of joy are the things that may be causing your marriage or, or different aspects of your marriage to decline. Uh, wives and husbands become mothers and fathers. And on a more intimate level, lovers become parents. And I think that change it happens so suddenly, but also so profoundly, that it's hard for people to really think about it. And certainly to then, I think you're exactly right, then the idea of blaming the children. And I certainly don't mean, I don't mean to, but I think, and and it's funny, the reaction I've had to this article has at times been, from a few folks, been somewhat hostile, that, oh, you must hate children. And for me, that's, not really the case. It's just that I think it's important if you don't have children, it's important to go into it with your eyes wide open and know that this will be really hard. And if you do have children like yourself, um, it's, I think, hopefully helpful to know that you're not alone. Yeah. If your marriage suffered, you're not alone. Now, my guest is Professor of Psychology, which means he's an expert. It's uh, Matthew Johnson, and Matthew is Professor of Psychology at the uh, Upstate New York University at Binghamton. The the book is called Great Myths of Intimate Relationships, Dating, Sex, and Marriage. And the key point we're addressing initially 
is that the marriage declines with the arrival of children, the relationship better than really the marriage. There are other kinds of marriages, though, apart from very worthwhile relationships where they're not married but do have children. So you could apply the same rules there. But increasingly, of course, we now have same-sex marriage. Um, What about those? Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It turns out that the impact of having children on a relationship is the same or very, very similar for same-sex couples as well as for couples who are not married, um, for wealthy couples and poorer couples. And interestingly, it's also really a universal phenomenon. There's research that has demonstrated this effect in many different countries, uh, including countries where they have very generous family leave policies and in countries where they don't, in countries that really value children and in countries where the fertility rate is really declining. But we've used the word relationship all the time. We've said the relationship declines with the arrival of children. Is this sex or is this everything in the relationship? Yeah, that's a great question. It seems to be everything, that there's a general sense of satisfaction. The the sense of most uh, clinicians that that one's satisfaction with their sex life accounts for maybe a third or so of their satisfaction with their relationship overall. So there's a lot of other things going on. Certainly the sex life does decline and tends to decline following children, but, but I don't think that captures everything. All right, but there, there is an important point here that this relationship, um, in my case, almost half a century, but but you're talking about relationships that can be 10 years, 20, 30, 40, 50. It's the biggest commitment of our lives, really. It's bigger than our job. It's bigger than anything. His commitment to marriage and the, the creation of children. It's a huge deal. Now, if, therefore, there's a decline in the relationship, this must lead, in many cases, to other stresses. So does, does your sort of study show, are you finding that you then have depression or, or other kind of stresses? It is such a big commitment. I really, I mean, I can't, I, I've been studying this for a while and I can't think of a bigger commitment. I mean, what other relationship or even aspect of our lives really do we pull everyone who's together, everyone we love, all of our friends, all of our family, and pull all those people together and we make a promise in front of them and in front of our God to stay with someone for the rest of our lives. That is a huge commitment and you're absolutely right. And one of the things we find is that if you take a look at the impact of our satisfaction with that relationship with our intimate partner, that satisfaction is the type of satisfaction that is most predictive of our overall life satisfaction. In other words, how happy we are with the rest of our life. Satisfaction with our intimate relationship partner that most determines that other life satisfaction. It's not our satisfaction with our work or our hobbies or our family of origin uh, or our friends. That's such a key thing. So that's why I think this matters. And, and okay. 
Well, you've yeah, done us all. You've done all us married people a favor. Anyway, you've got it out in the open. It's it's my guest, Professor of Psychology Matthew Johnson. Uh, the book, Great Myths of Intimate Relationships. Um, I must say, I never thought about it, but the last uh, ten or twelve minutes with Professor Johnson for me made me think, and hopefully made you think. Matthew, thanks so much for joining me. It was wonderful speaking with you. Thank you.